This episode of The Vergecast is brought to you by IBM. The music industry is facing new frontiers for talent discovery. Find out how IBM partnered with Spotify and multi-platinum music producer Alex DeKid to help Alex work smarter using AI to discover the perfect artist for his latest single, Go. Learn more at ibm.com slash music. Hello, and welcome to The Vergecast, the premier podcast of the Vox Media Podcast Network. How do you like that? Is that like a soccer reference? Yeah. Because of football? Yeah, no, but it could be. Because of world, sorry, the, world cup? Yeah. The FIFA podcast that you've been waiting for. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, this show is huge this week, hmm. but there's only three of us. Yeah. How do you like that? But Paul's back. Hello. Dieter's here. Hi. And, and I'm Neli, your friend. <laughs> we. I'm going to just tell you, the show is out of control this week. E3 is going on. Mm-hmm. I interviewed the CEO of Sonos after the Beam came out. We're going to run a, a piece of that. We're going to do a, a chunk of that interview. It was mm-hmm. very interesting, by the way. Every company has bought every other company, from what I can tell, <laughs> Yeah, which is yeah. a lot. Uh, net neutrality is over. Uh-huh. And a number of companies are threatening to kill your Wi-Fi router if you stop paying them a subscription fee, which is just a lot. It's like the world is creating content for us. Yeah, it's it's so much. And we found out today that... Some artist uh, painted a bunch of our headlines in the New York Times font in giant letters at Art Basel, which is amazing. Ron Tirada. You know, as the flagship podcast, I feel like you should have done that little summary and then at the end added all that and the BlackBerry Key 2 on this week's (laughs) Vergecast. And then then we run an ad. We don't have an ad to run there, but all that Mm. and the BlackBerry Key 2. We'll be back after we tell you how to shave or not shave. (laughs) We've told you how to shave so many times. I still don't know. All right. Let's start with E3. So here's the deal. We're going to try something new here on this, the Vergecast. Yeah. The flagship podcast of Vox Media Network. Uh, I really wanted someone who was at E3 to come on the show with us today. Mm-hmm. Laura Hudson, Megan Frogmanesh, Casey Newton, a bunch of people are all there. There's a ton of coverage from them on the site. Unfortunately, between flights and scheduling, East Coast, West Coast, we couldn't make it happen. But we got Laura to record just a couple minutes of all the biggest headlines so that you can know what they are, mm-hmm. and then we're going to dive into a, a couple of them. So let's listen. This is Laura Hudson, our culture editor. Check this out. Hey, it's Laura Hudson, culture editor at The Verge here. Uh, the team has been out at E3 all week hitting the news, but if you haven't had a chance to keep up, here are the headlines you need to know. One of the biggest announcements at E3 also ended up being one of the most frustrating. The massively popular Fortnite came to the Switch, and the game was downloaded 2 million times within 24 hours. But we also learned that Sony is blocking crossplay between the PS4 and the Switch and Xbox One, which understandably infuriated many fans. Bethesda gave us our first look at Fallout 76, which will take players back to the world of Fallout through an online survival game set in West Virginia, where you'll be able to nuke other players. Uh, We also got a glimpse of Doom Eternal, a sequel to the 2016 reboot of the classic shooter, the announcement of Elder Scrolls VI, and the news that the next Elder Scrolls will be a mobile RPG called Blades. We also got the announcement of Starfield, Bethesda's long-rumored sci-fi adventure. Uh, There are VR games coming for both Prey and Wolfenstein, and a new Wolfenstein game called Youngblood, where you can play co-op or single-player as the twin daughters of Nazi hunter BJ Blazkowicz in 1980s Paris. Nintendo gave us a detailed look at Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, uh, where you'll be able to play as Metroid's Ridley, uh, as well as every other character that's ever been in a Smash Bros. title before. 
Minecraft Story Mode is coming to Netflix this fall as an interactive adventure, and Telltale is making a standalone Stranger Things game for consoles and computers. Uh, we got a closer look at gameplay from Death Stranding, the bizarre baby-focused horror game from Hideo Kojima, uh, as well as the very cool-looking open-world RPG Cyberpunk 2077, and the hotly anticipated Last of Us Part Two, uh, which centered on a much more grown-up Ellie kissing girls and cutting throats. We learned that there isn't going to be any romance in BioWare's upcoming game Anthem, uh, but there will be an Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which will take the time-traveling franchise back to ancient Greece. Gears of War 5 is coming in 2019, uh, and we learned that Microsoft is not only hard at work on its next console, but making a big push for Xbox-exclusive games by acquiring five studios to help make them. On the indie side, we got a closer look at the super slick-looking Neocab, an emotional survival game where you play as a rideshare driver in a dystopian alternate reality that honestly doesn't seem that alternate. And there are two unstoppably cute games coming from Double Fine, Ooblets, which is Animal Crossing meets Pokemon for dance battles, and Nights and Bikes, which is Stranger Things meets Little Big Planet, but with badass bike riding girls on an isolated British island. Oh, and there's a new Battletoads game on the way. Uh, those are the big stories for E3, uh, but we've got a lot of interviews and deeper dives on the site as well, and lots more to come. Thanks, Laura. Back to you, Paul. So basically, <laughs> uh, let me let me break E three down for you. Yeah. By the way, that was great. Before Next you do stabbing. that, I thought that was great. Let us know if you want us to do more of like, that kind like of recap stuff, that kind of thing. Yeah. Quick summary. I learned a lot. Yeah. And I've been basically. So here's what happened. Tyler, the creator, <laughs> yeah, tweeted with Sony France mm-hmm. tweet that had an image of a guy with a skateboard. Microsoft announced a terrible looking I mean I've seen a, a lot of previews for this game called Session or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. What the world needs a skate for? Yeah. Entirely the creator knows that. Microsoft <laughs> knows that, so that's why they're backing this Kickstarter game called Session. Does EA know that? EA in the biggest PR hole of its very deeply dug PR hole <laughs> history. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't know that they need Skate 4. <laughs> and so I was like, here it is. EA didn't announce it at their presser because they're saving it. So it's Sony can like announce a timed exclusive. For, so like the only press conference I watched front to back, which, by the way, happened at 9 p.m. ET. Guess what was happening also at 9 p.m. ET? Trump and Kim Jong-un were meeting. <laughs> so I'm like watching these two things, hoping for Skate 4, hoping that there's no nuclear war. And what would you, what, instead you got no Skate 4 and you, you got a nuclear war. Yeah, like a, like a loose yeah. agreement to not, nobody's dying yet right now. And also I can't skateboard. <laughs> so that's my E3. I will put, I will say this. When we were putting together the show notes, I was like, Paul, we got a big show. And he's like, I'll do an hour on Skate 4. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's focus on the first thing Laura mentioned, sure. which was the new. Speaking of the Sony press conference, right? They didn't address it there, but Nintendo announces Fortnite on the Switch. Not just announces, but it get, got released, bang, right away. Yeah, pretty. I much. feel like the, yeah. at this port, there's a team at, at Epic that has ported Fortnite to everything, and they're just waiting. Well, the, you know, so Epic annou- talked about this at the at GDC, I believe. Like Epic mm-hmm. is very important to them cross-platform, and they're u- they're going to use as much leverage as they possibly have, and they've never had more leverage because they have the most popular game in the world right now, Yeah, uh, to, to make cross-platform play happen. And they've been engineering Unreal Engine to be super cross-platform, which is why not only was Fortnite came to mobile, 
but PUBG, which is also built on Unreal Engine, was quickly was able to come to mobile. So, you know, Epic has been setting themselves up for this cross-platform future, and now who looks like a stick in the mud? So Sony is not allowing <laughs> it's actually worse than this. It's mm. not just yeah, they're not so allowing here, let, me, let me just give platform. you the rundown. Yeah. So uh they announced all right. Fortnite's available on the Switch. Go get it at 10 p.m. Pacific. Everyone's like, hooray, and they go and they download it, and then they start it up. And if you have ever, even once, played Fortnite on a PS4, you cannot log into that account on your Switch. You've been locked out. You can do cross-play across PC and Xbox and Switch and mobile and all that's fine. But Sony specifically seems to be blocking cross-play with the Switch. Although nobody knew for sure what the story was because people saw this error message. There was this error message from Epic that was just like ice cold. Yeah, just, the error message is comically This doesn't bad. work. This doesn't work, and don't email us or call us because we can't fix it. Mm -hmm. Make a new account. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> At which point... Epic says nothing. You know that there's there was probably a lawyer with a, like a like a Sony on logo on their lapel with a knife just like standing next to their Twitter account. People just <laughs> wow. like be quiet. Um, Sony said nothing. Xbox, Microsoft was like, ha ha. They like no, our our stuff is cross compatible. I don't know what's up for something like thirty six to forty eight hours, uh, and then finally Sony issued a statement that was. We love crossplay. Our crossplay works with PC. Bye. Completely ignoring oh, we, the massive about, backlash that they've been facing. Something about we like to hear people's comments. Yeah, yeah. We want your feedback. Yeah, <laughs> our feedback is stop it. Uh, yeah, the Sony corporate PR AI machine was like feedback accepted. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mess. Here's what I don't understand. Yeah. Can you help me figure this out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very confusing, actually. So when you log into Fortnite. You're logging into Epic. Mm-hmm. Right. So how can Sony, like, intercept... As far as I know, there at one point with Fortnite, there was a bug in Fortnite, mm -hmm. and there was cross-platform play. Yeah. Bum, Epic bum, bum. is artificially restricting cross-platform so, play so, from PS4 specifically because Sony wants it. Okay, so what is Sony giving Epic... Right, that's like an interesting dynamic there that I don't understand because it's just software that connects to a server. I think they're giving them access to the platform. Like maybe they're giving them money. Maybe there's something under the table there. But I think it's just as likely that what they're doing is not banning Epic from the PS4. And so if that's the case, the question is, does Epic have enough leverage to be like, whatever, we're turning it on? Or can Sony somehow block it in their system where... They, everything that goes online gets routed through Sony's server at one point through your, your PSN account, which means that Sony can block it and Epic doesn't even have a chance to say, no, we're doing it, screw you. Well, well you can't play online on a PS4 unless you're signed into PSN. Right, and so right. you'd have to be pinging Sony's servers at some point for that identity stuff. But obviously, yeah. that's already working for, like, if, if on Epic's end, they just pretended like the Xbox and Switch were, like, iOS devices. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's what, I mean, so the, the other thing Laura was mentioning is Microsoft's really into these exclusive. Doesn't anybody realize? I, I feel like we're, we're out of the exclusive era. I understand that, like, Nintendo can do Nintendo things. Mm -hmm. I don't think Sony and Microsoft really get to do the classic console war anymore because I just feel like I don't know, man. PC gaming it has so much power in this market now. I mean, Sony won though because of its exclusives. 
They just blew Microsoft away this generation. I, the, yeah. Microsoft's announcement were not about fixing also, the Xbox God One. of War, by the way, exclusive. Just saying. Like, one of my favorite games of the past six months. Anyway. But I, I think Microsoft bought all these studios so that when... Because they're already talking about their next generation. Sony was out there uh, a month or so ago being like, we're in the final phase of the PS4. Right? They're, they're setting themselves up for the next console generation. Yeah, but I just feel well, like... So is, so is Microsoft, although for a different reason. No, I'm saying, <laughs> but I'm saying both of them. I'm saying winning the, the battle of console exclusives is winning what is not necessarily a smaller pie, but it is a small pie relative to the future of games. The most important games of the world are Fortnite. Which is everywhere. PUBG. Which is just one place. No, it's everywhere. It's everywhere now? Mm-hmm. It's but everywhere, yeah. League of Legends, which is PC. Mm-hmm. Minecraft, which is everywhere. I mean, jump in if there's, like, stuff I'm missing. Like, I know that there's really important games that people love. Skate and- 4. <laughs> <laughs> it's one you're missing. Technically, that was an accurate answer. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now, I get what you're saying. The biggest games in the world are everywhere. Yeah. But you've got to move it on the margin, right? So, like, Right, that's what I'm saying. They're playing for it. the margin. They're fighting yeah. over the margin. They're that's not, not fighting a bad over the fight future. to win. Whatever, I don't care. You're just gonna. I, I don't well, know. That I, I do care. I stupidly you, bought a PS4 Pro instead of an Xbox One X. Right. Because everyone was like, no, no, no. you gotta you get these the right exclusives. Decision. You made the right decision, except for this Fortnite garbage, because there are better games on the PS4. There just are. Yeah. I think built into that argument is that PC gaming is the future for everybody. And I just don't. Nope. Sorry. I hate PC gaming. I love gaming on consoles. Like, yeah. having a big, dumb, QWERTY keyboard in front of me while I'm trying to play a video game is not fun or immersive for me. Hmm. What I like doing is buying all the video games and then not playing them. Yeah. That's my strategy. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any other E3 news that you want to talk about, Dieter, Paul? I mean, so Microsoft, they bought a bunch of companies to try and actually make games for the Xbox to get exclusives. They are planning a streaming, a good streaming video game service. We'll see. But they, they want to release stuff, you know, day and date uh, on the streaming service and have it be high quality and not wait for it to come later as like, you know other stuff there was no metroid prime 4 i'm very unhappy about that it's fine it's fine i know i should be excited about smash brothers i'm not i know i should be but i'm bad at video games and you have to be good at video Mm. games in order to enjoy playing smash brothers and i'm bad at them and therefore (laughs) whatever i think cyberpunk 2077 or whatever it looks fine it looks good i played cyberpunk back in the day like the rpg that this is based on Mm -hmm. But I don't know something. Something about it strikes me as it's like they're not gonna pull it off. It'll be good, but I I'm, I don't think it's gonna be like generation defining. And I wish I had something interesting to say about Death Stranding uh, beyond the thing that everybody says, which is what the hell is going on here? It looks like it's just gonna be unsettling all the time. I was talking to my buddy, and it's like there's a game coming out where you're like a mailman. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're just alone and then it's like a weird apocalypse and you're a mailman. I was like, you mean the Kojima game? <laughs> He's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited about that. I love that. a Kojima game. I'm yeah. in it. Yeah. I love carrying babies in little weird things and then they detect invisible creatures. Yeah. It's unsettling and it's different and you don't expect it. Yeah. I think that's what's yeah. worrying about, like Fallout 76 was probably, to me, it seems like the biggest announcement of the show. And... It's just not unsettling or different enough. It's like, what if we mixed Grand Theft Auto Online with uh, Rust and kind of something a well, little like bit like Fallout, now, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like I think everyone's chasing the the Fortnite wave, right? Like, what if we take our world and make it funner for everyone to play? And like maybe, maybe. that's what you want. 
Yeah, it's got um, to be different. Or I personally hope Beyond Good and Evil Two is great because uh, I loved the original Beyond Good and Evil. But did you see this drama about Jason Gordon-Levitt's hit record thing? Joseph, Apparently, they're going to try and crowdsource music for it, and everyone's like, "That's spec work, yo." And he's like, "No, it's fine." And it just, I don't know, man. If you're partnering, like, he's an, he's a very fine actor. And I love that he gets to make a viral video once a year where people feel like they're empowered. That's all very nice. But it's so clearly just like a play for him to make money off of branded content. He, he's been like partnered with LG for years that I kind of just don't care. And I wish they wouldn't have bothered. Hmm. I, so I read his whole thing immediately. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt, just to explain what's going on. JGL. Yeah. <laughs> he is making music for a game. Mm-hmm. And he has a platform. Called Hit Record. Called Hit Record. Where everybody mm-hmm. can like participate in the making of music, and his thing is like participate in the making of music, and we'll put it in this game. Mm. But it was unclear until today, where it got slightly less unclear how anyone get paid for that work. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you participate and give something away for free to a game that would be sold for money and presumably play JGL? And then he like this long thing about how everyone gets paid if you're in the final thing, and some people's contributions are small, so they get just get paid pennies. Some people get paid hundreds of dollars. Hmm. It was a very long thing about how the payment would work and his theories about payment. And I just, we're coming to a point on the internet where the kids are going to start realizing that Metallica was right. It's it's going to happen. <laughs> where, where we're going to look back on Lars Ulrich being like, hey, don't steal our shit and give it away for free. Hmm. And everyone yelled at him. And now we're, we're going to loop all the way back around to... Anytime I publish something on the internet, I should get paid for it, which is not a bad argument. It's just, to me, very funny because of how pilloried every artist years and years ago was about stealing your music. I feel like we're progressing towards the end of copyright. You are definitely wrong. Probably. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like you can't – I was talking about this um, uh, with a bunch of our culture reporters, Megan and Bajan, Patricia, and, and Devin. Um, mm-hmm. Like YouTubers now get mad when people steal their formats. Right, Pe- mm. YouTubers get really mad when people do reaction videos to their videos. All that stuff is just—it's fundamental copyright stuff, and the moral outrage they feel is actually reflected in the law. But they hate—they hate it. So it's—it's it's like this parallel system where just like how many how many internet comment points you score is like the alternative to like getting lawyered up. It's—it's it's really wait. wacky. Explain what you're saying because I don't quite understand. My my understanding of YouTube culture is is. They are freaked out if anybody's going to do copyright strikes against them. Right. So they hate that. Yeah. But they don't, they also don't like it if, like, you're a smaller YouTuber and a bigger YouTuber lifts your format or they do a reaction video to your thing or there's a lot of people who they're like, my music got used. But the the cycle, or here's another example smaller designers hate it when bigger brands steal their designs, right? Which is a thing that happens yeah. all the time. And there's like sure. a whole, there's sure. waves and waves of outrage. But I feel like YouTube culture is not very much like that. People are used to this idea that you get exposure. Through, I think that's changing. Through this, through this I method. think that's changing in serious and ways. I, and I, I think this video game thing is interesting because, you know, Bethesda, I really, is feels like one of the, just, it's a behemoth now. And a, a lot of it is based on uh, user-generated content. Yeah, so I think that. Which happens after release, after people have already paid for the game and people build content for Skyrim or Fallout after the fact. Yeah, so, I, but I think it's. This I mean, they're, they're, it's like parallel thought processes mm-hmm. that are not reconciled. 
One is you built a thing, I'm actively participating in a thing, and the dawning realization that I'm receiving no compensation, but you're getting rich, right? And there's like a, something is changing in there, right? And then on the other side, there's like the formal copyright regime, which is I'm going to lift a the new Ariana Grande song and put on YouTube and write no copyright intended under it. And that should be fine. (laughs) And like those things have not been reconciled at all. Right. Right. Either you're like, you live in a world where it's, it's fine to just like take and remix and share. Mm -hmm. And then some people will like sell it or you live in a world where it's, it's not fine. And I, I, I just watching sort of this new generation of creators, which I I love, I love the fact that they're, they just have different ideas. Yeah. I'm just watching everybody sort of reconcile the idea that they're making stuff and they want that stuff to be valuable with the environment, in, in many cases, the platforms that like created the ability for them to make stuff. Mm. So like, I, I think it's like this thing to me is, this JGL yeah. thing to me is like just an example of we're past the point of corporations really asking people to make them stuff for free. Right, like they, they're like, no, you're gonna, you're gonna make a lot of so, money if I do this. In some industries, we are, but I, I ultimately, it's their right to do, to, to do spec work. Like, obviously, yeah. a lot of industries, like, it's really frowned upon. But like, I'm not gonna get outraged on behalf of somebody who's totally fine with it and into it. Yeah, you know, it also is a way to like, in if many they, cases, like submit a thing where you would never have the entry yeah, point. If you want to be involved in something bigger than yourself, or you want exposure or whatever. Go for it. If you say, no, my work is worth money, I will only do it for money, then go for that as well. Yeah, I'm There's actually a- not mad about the spec work that, or not that mad about the spec work. I think I think you shouldn't do it if you can avoid it. Uh, I think it's not great for, you know, your life. I'm just mad that JGL gets to, is, is still thinking that he can act like he's doing a, a nice, lovely internet thing and not just doing brand advertising, because that's what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, aren't we all just doing spec work for Twitter? <laughs> right? Like, we just give this shit away for free all day long. I want to go back to Microsoft really quick. Yeah. And I know this is unfair, but man, am I tired of Microsoft selling me on like they're going to get it right next time and that the future is going to be amazing instead of selling me video games right now. Mm. Yeah. Like, and I'm not just talking about like Crackdown is taking forever to come out, right? I'm talking about like, they're like, here's our thing, but... Just hang on. The next thing is going to be even better. Microsoft like, can't help it because they're a platform vendor. That's what every platform vendor does, right? They think about the mm-hmm. Xbox like Windows. They're like, we built a new platform. It's got new APIs. It's going to work in great ways. Take it away, developers. And the developers are like, Sony paid us. But like, we just came off dev conference season, and like, that's what all the platform vendors do. They're like, look at all the new features of our platform. Developers take it well, away. It's weird to me because it seems like Microsoft understood this back in the day. What did they do yeah. to get the Xbox? They bought Bungie. Yeah. They outbid Apple for Bungie. That's sorry. true. For, for, for Halo, basically. Can you imagine? And they also had Peter Molyneux. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they were the first Xbox. It's the Xbox 360. Mm-hmm. That was the that really did it, yeah. right? And they they beat Sony very significantly to that generation, mm-hmm. right? Like they were first out with HD, which is wild to think about. Like oh yeah, they had Gears of War, right? They 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 just they just sort of won the race in a way that they have not yet won the race. But it just seems like I don't know. I've never had a billion dollars, so I don't know. It seems like it's easy to spend a billion dollars and make a lot of vi- video games that are exclusive. That's one way to get 
exclusive video games is to pay. Well, for. they they just bought four studios or something, so that that's that's the plan. Like you said, years late. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got, we got to move on from E three. Thank you, Laura, for for recording that segment for us. I'm very curious if you want more of that on the Virtcast. We have a lot of reporters who would just like do that every week. Let me know if you enjoyed segments like that. We'll have Laura on the show soon and actually like, get into it. But let me know if you like it. We are going to take a break. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to come back and check this out. I interviewed. Patrick Spence, the CEO of Sonos. Last week on the show, Paul, you weren't here. Mm. I posited that Sonos's entire business model was driving people to build bigger and bigger houses so that oh. you would need more and more speakers. I asked him about this. This is true. This is a great theory. And I told him that if he ever partners with LinkedIn to build a career services division, <laughs> I hold royalties. <laughs> anyway, we're going to have an ad. You're going to listen to me interview Patrick Spence. Dieter's just going to keep ranting about video games in the background. Then we're going to come back and talk about gadgets. And honestly, antitrust law. And then a half hour about Skate 4. (laughs) (laughs) All right, listen to this. Hi, VergeCast listeners. I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large at at Recode. I want to tell you about an interview I just published on my podcast, Recode Decode. At the Code Conference this year, I interviewed Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi about replacing Travis Kalanick, its founder, and his plan for the future of Uber and what happens to its self-driving division after that fatal accident in Arizona. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it wherever you listen to the VergeCast. See you there. Hey, everybody. We're back. Patrick Spence, the CEO of Sonos, is with us. Hey, Patrick. How are you? Hey, good, Neil. How are you? I am great. You launched a new product last week, the Beam. How are you feeling? Feeling very good. Yeah, we were very happy with the reception of that product and really, you know, what we think is the best smart speaker in the world. Well, that's a that's a bold claim. Let's 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 dive into it. I, I like it. Just to set the stage, you have been at Sonos for some time, right? You've you, uh, six years or so. That's right. Yeah, just I'm just coming up on my six year anniversary. And you took over as CEO about about 18 months ago. That's correct. So I, I was just looking at some of the you wrote a great memo to your team when you took over as CEO and you know, it's interesting. You'd been there for several years before and you took over. So you obviously want to make change, but you're you're from the culture. But there was one line I just want to ask about specifically. And it's a great line. I, re- I really like it. You said we need a bias to action. We need to innovate boldly and move faster. How in the in the last 18 months, how's that going? Like, what changes have you made to like really deliver on that? Well, I think I think the announcement cadence speaks for itself. So we've actually had three new uh, products over that 18 month period. And we've ended in a good position where people are moving faster. And really, I think I think the demand was latent in the organization to really, you know, really put us in a position where we could unleash kind of people inside the company. And so it was one of those things where it was there and I was just kind of opening it up. And, and again, you have to think about the whole life cycle of the, of the company, because Really, in the beginning, Sonos was quite ahead of its time and mm-hmm. was in a position where if we were moving too fast, we actually would have been ahead of the customer. And in some of those situations, you know, you can actually end up extending yourself too far and in a situation where the company just, you know, uh, is gone. Right. And so there was a little bit of making sure that we were uh, working through it and in kind of the right cadence and not getting too far ahead of it. But now, certainly, like we've seen smart speakers and everything we've been doing kind of really hit with the mainstream. And so I felt it was really important to say, all right, now's the time to really unleash the team and like, let's go and let's bring, you know, everything we got to the, uh, to the game. So the three products that you talked about that you've introduced, the obviously Sonos One, which was yes. probably the splashiest, most mainstream consumer product. It's a smart speaker. It's a hot market. The Play Bass, 
which was an extension of your, your existing home theater line, like a, a nice repackaging of the play bar. And then now the Beam, which is another home theater device with speakers in it. Were all of those brought up under your watch? Were some of them kind of products that were coming anyway? Did you did you say, we have to do this right now, start from scratch, release a product? Or were they all kind of in the pipeline already? We, we always have a number of ideas we're kind of working on. And I think what you know I did with the team is really say, all right, it's time to move on these products. So Playbase was just a couple months after uh, I took over. You know, that one was in the pipeline. Uh, and then the first, I was really the one that was pushing around the importance of voice control as making it even easier, you know, for our experience, which is something we've always prided ourselves on, is that ability really for customers to get the music playing quickly. Uh, and have a great experience. And so the Sonos One has been our fastest product to market. And obviously it's leveraged everything we've you know learned in the past and built off the Play One. Uh, but that is, you know, I, I'm really proud of the team's efforts there because that's something that we brought to market faster than any other product. Uh, and with Beam, it was something that we had the ideas around. And again, with voice coming into it, just really needed to kind of need a bit of a push if you will, in order to get that in the right place. And uh, so, yeah, so just been trying to make it clear, like what's the right next one? What are the important attributes of the product that we need to bring to the market to keep building on the kind of experience we believe customers really want? So the Beam, when it was, I think Dieter, you know, Dieter wrote a great profile of, of the Beam and how you're working on it. He, and I noticed that piece he said it started two years ago. Did you, was there a moment when you pulled the ripcord and said, hey, add microphones to this? Or, absolutely. Or, okay. Absolutely. No, that was important. So I really, you know, it wasn't too long after uh, the Echo, original Echo came out that, you know, I try to get every product to try to be experimenting and, and experience everything that's happening in the industry and even outside the industry, uh, just to see, you know, what's happening and, and uh, have a feel for that. And the I've been on the voice bandwagon for quite a while. And that's one where we said, no, this is we need to get this in the product. It wasn't originally in the scope. And uh, we said, no, we've got to get voice into this product. Yeah. So the you know, the voice market's obviously very, it's hot, right? I mean, you're you're competing against some, all the big players. They've validated the approach, right? Google has a bunch of products out there. Amazon, obviously, you both compete with and work with. Apple has a HomePod. And, you know, the, the value of Sonos to me, I have a pretty big Sonos system is that I can just use all the music services. You have Alexa on there now. You've been talking about adding Google Assistant. When, when is that sort of next stage coming where you have multiple voice services? When is Assistant coming, for example? Well, last week we demoed the ability to use Siri to actually start the music on Sonos as well with AirPlay 2. And so, yes, you know, it's not directly on the speaker, but you're using your iOS device to be able to activate the music and move it around. Yeah, with that's Siri. not what I and, mean, and, and, I mean, no, fair enough. Right. Yeah. And so, so we, you know, we announced last year with Google that we'll be bringing Google Assistant to our speakers and we continue to work on that. And when it's ready to go, we'll roll that out. So we're working, we're working closely with them right now and uh, stay tuned, you know, on, on that one. Well, let me ask you a very leading question. Is the holdup a technical holdup or a business holdup? Oh, it's all the technical work right now really? that the teams need to do to create a great experience. Yeah, that's that's what it's taking. And, and look, like even, you know, this is this is a repeat to the same questions I got last year at this time, which is mm -hmm. where's Alexa, where's Alexa, where's Alexa? <laughs> you know, when, when we approach one of these things, and I think we built the reputation with these partners. Remember, we've worked with Amazon, Google, Apple, Spotify for a long, long time and on the music service front. And now that we're working with partners like Amazon and Google and Apple around voice, 
you know, they know how we approach this from a very, you know, holistic experience basis. And we do things, you know, in the experience like we're doing with continuity control, where, you know, last week you could start the music with Siri and you could ask Alexa what's playing and Alexa would know. And so as we think about these experiences, we build them in a more holistic way because we're not thinking the way everybody else is, which is kind of walled garden speakers. We're thinking about an open system which supports every service that you need, whether it's a music streaming service, a voice service, audiobook service, podcast service, whatever it may be, anything from the sonic internet that you want to play out loud on Sonos, you should be able to. And that's what we're committed to. So I got I'm gonna come all the way back around to this very specific question. You only have one assistant now. When you've at you you've said Google Assistant's coming. Is there a timeline on that? We're working on it. So we always pride ourselves on bringing it out when it's ready. So uh, we'll let you know when it's ready. I'm going to try again. Is it this year? We'll launch the product when it's ready. <laughs> All right. Well, I had to give it a shot. <laughs> of course. It does not sound you like you just, I will say, it doesn't sound like you're saying this year. De- see, the sonic <laughs> internet <laughs> fails at this question. No, no sonics at all. Uh, well, hopefully it will be this year. I'm sure you're going to let us know. Yeah, of course we'll let you know as we, you know, go through that. But I also want to make sure that we get the experience right. And like I said, you know, we this is the exact same you know, question we were going through last year. And so uh, I would just say, stay tuned. Uh, so, all right. So then here's the the natural follow up question. You have AirPlay two, AirPlay two yes. only on the newer devices. You just told me that it, you know, you've got, you know. Five-year-old devices, 93% of them still being used. Was there a specific reason you couldn't bring AirPlay 2 to the older devices? Uh, you know, we the, with the processor memory requirements, we had to look back and, you know, make basically a decision in terms of how far back we could support at this point. And so uh, that was the guiding principle as we went through it. And then with AirPlay, AirPlay 2 is great, you know, but Apple, that's their open-ish standard for audio, and they really want you to have a HomePod and control AirPlay 2 through a HomePod. But hey, the bigger question is obviously Siri. And I know I was listening to, you were on Two Bears Task with Kara and Lauren Good last year, and they pushed you on this, so I'm going to do it again. Is there any update on the conversation with Apple around bringing Siri to the Sonos platform? You know, I think at this point, Apple needs to decide if they're going to be, you know, opening Siri to third parties. Uh, but we have a good relationship with Apple and uh, we've had some conversations on this and look forward to having more. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a coup that you, I, you know, I'm an Apple music subscriber and I think it's, it's a coup that Apple let you have Apple music from the beginning. That's not usually how they work. And it, it, I think it speaks to the fact that a lot of very influential people have Sonos in their homes and Apple would have never gotten anywhere if they didn't, if they didn't offer you the support. But do you feel like you have the leverage that similar kind of leverage to get, Siri? Yeah, look, I think the what the services we have kind of speak for themselves in the sense that we're in millions of the most desirable homes around the world. And so companies like Amazon, Google and Apple want to get their services in front of those customers and in fact must. And remember, like their agendas are quite different than ours in many cases. Like we're not attempting to build an ask anything voice assistant and try to own the search space, right? And we're not we're not looking to build a big e-commerce company and sell you everything. And we're not also going to go build a mobile phone, you know, and approach it in that way. And so I think as all these companies, from my conversations with them, what I found is they love the experience. They We have a history with them, right, in terms of the work we did do on streaming music, to your point. And then they're looking at it saying, okay, we want to work with you on creating a great experience and bring our voice services together. And I think 
you know, for the most part, if we can continue to show them that we're good partners in that way and continue to build our household base in the kind of way we have been, then we're in a good position and it's the right thing for the customers and everybody wins. So when you say you can work with everyone, that's a lofty goal, but they also have cross purposes as well, right? And, you know, I think Amazon's strategy with Alexa, honestly, remind, it, I feel like Alexa's Amazon's Windows, right? They, they want it everywhere. They want everyone to use it. Virtually anybody can build an Alexa product. Google is doing something similar with Assistant, although it really feels like Google's first-party Assistant products are where their emphasis is. Apple, obviously, is very tightly controlling of Siri. But when you think about what you're doing with Alexa in particular, are you getting a, a deeper relationship with that, them and their team than sort of any other... Alexa voice services vendor would get? Or are you just taking what, what they're offering publicly and building your own sort of like middle layer to control it all? We're working more closely with them just as we did on streaming services. And that goes across the board as we engage with voice services. So, you, you know, working to make sure that the that continuity control continues in the cloud so we know it's playing and that there's uh, that there's good continuity between our app and like, for instance, the Spotify app and as well, Alexa. And so that takes work between our teams. And so we have a good partnership with uh, Dave Limp and his team over at Amazon. And I really think, you know, they're approaching it with Alexa. Yeah, they absolutely want to get Alexa everywhere. And they, they look at the households we're in and say, hey, we want to make sure that those homes can experience Alexa. And look, also when I look at it, you know, there'll be, there'll be some rooms in the home that maybe do have a you know, an Echo Dot, let's say, and then there'll be others that are more appropriate for Sonos. And I think that may be the world, you know, that we live in. And if so, uh, that's fine, right? We want to have the interoperability so that people can be using that. But I think what happens longer term is that people look to different brands for different things. It just happens in apps. It happens in all these spaces where, you know, you'll ask one company for ordering something. So Amazon for ordering something as part of Prime. You all are going to ask Google for, you know, the general searches. And you might ask Siri to play Apple Music or to find your iPhone, for instance. And then maybe you're going to ask Facebook to do something. Maybe you'll ask Spotify to do something. I just don't see a world where you're going to have one assistant that's going to do everything for you. And mm -hmm. that's why we think it's important to be able to uh, offer the the whole host of services and kind of give customers that ability to uh, be future proof, if you will. Tell me about the IKEA thing. So that was really interesting. Uh, uh, just a little inside baseball. This wasn't your press release. It's uh, you're free to laugh. But IKEA put out a press release and they sent us the wrong photos, so we had to like go back. So this otherwise like <laughs> innocuous sort of story like became a fire drill for our international team because they, they were pulling down all the tweets and Facebook posts and putting up the right pictures. So uh, at least from my perspective, I suddenly was paying a lot of attention to this. Um, but tell me, so you partnered with IKEA. They're going to make their own speakers with your tech in them. That is a very new move for you, right? Absolutely. So I think the, I'm now curious as to what pictures you received, but I think the, you know, we, we're, we're, we've been experimenting with them on a yeah. few different, you know, four factors, obviously, and they, they bring it's been fun to work with them because they bring such an interesting home design mentality and kind of modular thinking to it and at different price points, right? As they think about it. So we're, we're working with them to help with uh, some of the hardware platforming, but probably most importantly, the software setup experience and the services around it. And so this is what I mean when I talk about 
the fact that most of our product teams actually is software. And that experience for a lot of people has been, Sonos has made it super simple for me to experience music around my home. And we're bringing that to Ikea and they'll have other ideas about the ways to, you know, in what kind of form factors should sound really show up. But I think with our true play technology, right, which allows you to uh, move the sound around the room and really tailor it to the room, plus their ingenuity on furniture uh, and, and, you know, and then our combination around sound and some of the software experience, there's some really interesting possibilities for the way you experience sound in your home that are very different than the way we've experienced it for the last 50 years, right? But you're not you're not designing their speakers for them, right? Like if IKEA is there like a minimum sound quality threshold that IKEA has to reach or we, do they just have your we, software we, and you're going for it? It's a much closer collaboration than that. So we both, you know, obviously we're very near and dear to the fact that anything that is part of the Sonos ecosystem needs to sound great. And so we're working very closely with them and helping there uh, as well. But certainly at the end of the day, they will be the ones, you know, selling and creating those speakers. But we're collaborating on that, collaborating on the form factors, collaborating on the ideas around the, the furniture, and then bringing our expertise around software. So you brought up TruePlay. Here's a simple question. You're now putting out speakers with microphones in them. Um, obviously, Apple's doing all this like crazy tuning with the HomePod. Google's doing it with the Home Max. Are you thinking about having TruePlay just sort of automatically work instead of waving an iOS device around? Absolutely. No, that's that's the next step for TruePlay for sure. Uh, you know, everybody enjoyed the TruePlay dance, but I think we could take it a step further from simplicity. And we're, we're definitely working on that right now. My Every time I go to a friend's house with Sonos, I can immediately determine how much of an AV nerd that they are by, by you know, opening the app and seeing, seeing if TruePlay has been enabled. Because I know, I know they spent the five minutes listening to beeps and like walking around. Exactly, doing the dance. Yes, doing the dance. But you're you're it. saying that that's coming. That the the products, the microphones, presumably only they're the only ones that could do it. They're exactly. gonna they're gonna start yep. listening and tuning yeah. in real time. We're, we're yeah, we're working on that now to actually do it without you needing to do anything. In the same way that look like one of the one of the things that we're also working on is the ability uh, to do auto updates so that the software is updating in the background. Uh, so that you don't have to, when you open the app, you don't have to go through and do that, which has been something that's been uh, gotten in the way of people listening faster, if mm -hmm. you will. So it sounds like a small thing, but at the end of the day, it, I, I really think it's a lot of these small things that ultimately add up to the great experience around Sonos and, and what really matters. Yeah, my favorite Sonos update uh, of the recent months was it, it very much wanted me to update to the newest version so that I'm... Um, uh, Sonos One Alexa support would be available in New Zealand, and I, you know, I kept, Australia. Come Australia. on, come on. Sorry, you like it right? I don't want it. Right. I'm and sorry I, if I irritated I anybody down under. That. <laughs> uh, but it was just like one of those moments where I was like, I don't. I mean, I'll do it, but I, I don't actually want to stop. I've opened the app to listen to music. I don't want to shut everything down, right? And then, and then Thank you got to remember to do it. So you're saying that you can bring that. Can you? Now this is like a, a 10 year product cycle question, right? Can you bring those capabilities to your older products? Yes. That, that capability we can. There's certain things that you can't, like all the time as you go through it, you know, from time to time. So we have to decide on which things we can. But we definitely, it's interesting because we're probably on the leading edge of the smart home as you think about that and how long we've been in the home and connected to the internet and everything around that and shipping products now for 13 years that are internet connected. And we have a pretty good reputation of being able to deliver the new functionality and help keep making those speakers better. But it does get to a point. We recently end of life, the CR 100, for instance, our controller, right? Because <laughs> it was a, 
it was a 13 year old mini computer basically, and it can only do so much. And so this is it's one of those things that I think we do better than most, but they still do. You know, eventually they come to some point where uh, you can't keep going. So just staying on that sort of the 10 year timeline thing, can you as these things get smarter and smarter and smarter, the connectivity gets more and more intense as you build out into, you know, more interconnections with smart homes as assistants get, you know, the push and pull between what you're doing locally and what you're doing in the cloud um, happens among all these country companies. Are you, do you think these products now are going to last the full 10 years with the hardware that's in them? Are you building them out or are you, are you saying this is our, this is what we can do right now? We're thinking in the, in the kind of five to 10 year range, that's the way we think about these products. So for sure, you know, in terms of doing that now, we'll see like, is there some major leap in technology, either, you know, software hardware that then says, okay, this one's only going to live seven versus this one at 10. I can't, you know, specifically say for each product, but we definitely think in that five to 10 year, uh, you know, timeline, which is so different, right. Than most companies I find in consumer electronics, because we believe if we do that, we do that well and make it better over time, people will add another one, right? And they'll tell their friends and family about it. And and that builds like a great business for the long term. I just think people in this day and age are so impatient and so like all these disposable devices and people that, you know, buy a Bluetooth speaker this year and then the next one next year or like in a couple of years and they all end up in drawers and all that kind of stuff is just it's disappointing and it's just <laughs> different than the way we approach the whole space and want people to use it, use our stuff. Yeah, I, I guess, I don't know if you listened to our show last week or somebody tattled on us, but we were joking that you're, the Sonos business model, it almost demands that every Sonos customer becomes more and more successful over time so that their house will have more rooms and so you'll be able to sell another speaker for every room. Like, is that how you think about the customer or is it, I'm going to tell my friend that this was great? There's really so two things happen. One is that, you know, every year uh, over a third of our sales come from existing customers adding another Sonos product, which Mm -hmm. I think is unprecedented in the industry. So people engage in it. They listen to 80 percent more music once they buy Sonos and then they engage in the system and they're using it all the time and they add another room because they love it so much. So that's like one driver. But that, you know, two thirds of our revenue that come from new homes the number one driver of that is people telling, you know, their friends and family, right? So existing customers telling their friends and family, I got Sonos, it's great, you should get it or buying it for them for Christmas, what have you. And so that's really the way that it happens. And I think it's our job to bring additional products out and like what we're doing with Ikea and what have you to to really reach a broader range of customers as we go through it and just make it more accessible. And I think if we do that, then we end up being able to get it into even more homes. But right now, definitely the the flywheel is engagement and love that drives repeat purchases from existing customers and them telling their friends and family about Sonos. Have you ever thought about like partnering with LinkedIn to do like Sonos career development so that people have to buy <laughs> they buy every every Sonos customer is like eventually going to buy a bigger house? Well, it's interesting because then we get into correlation causation. So maybe it's because they bought Sonos that they became successful. And maybe that is, maybe that should be the marketing line, right? Is that this is a, if you buy Sonos, you can expect a bigger career, a bigger house and everything that comes with it. I'm definitely, I like that. I'm definitely calling you for royalties if you pull out a LinkedIn invitation. Actually, I have one more question about you expanding. You, there was another, this is way under the radar, but um, compared to Ikea, but you partner with like Pioneer, Marantz, and you're letting their receivers control some Sonos devices now. 
are you gonna and that's like a big you know there's a lot of people with like full-on crazy home theaters they want to put Sonos in them now it's a little bit more seamless than it was before you still have to buy some hardware are you ever just going to straight up license the underlying Sonos connectivity stack and just let them build it into a receiver directly or let I don't know Yamaha put it in a sandbar on their own We've been thinking we've been thinking about it because I think in that space, you know, there's a lot of still great traditional audio companies that don't have the software expertise that we do. And really, I don't see many of them investing and it's kind of a shame. And so there's these great audio brands. And certainly it's something that we continue to look at, like how deeply should we partner on that? So, yeah, you've seen us dip our toe in the water there. But much like we're also working with Ikea on how do we uh, bring you know Sonos to more people uh, through their, you know, kind of through furniture at home and all of that. We're definitely looking as well at the more high end audiophile space and how do we, you know, give that Sonos experience, but also give people the flexibility they want, right? Cause there are people that still will want these high powered specific receivers or, you know, their, their tower speakers or what have you. And so we want to be there and, you know, I mean, we came out of that world originally, right. With connect and connect amp in terms of really powering other people's systems. And so it, it's interesting you would raise it because it has been something that's been more of a conversation around here lately. We've dipped our toe in the water. We're obviously extending the software platform. And so look for us to be doing more in that space for sure because I, I think there's something there and I think it's good for the industry. Yeah, I mean, I have a, a Denon receiver with a Kinect you know, plugged into it. Of course, I've only ever bought Pioneer receivers before and I, I bought a Denon this time and then you announced it. And integration with Pioneer. So that was great. But the, the <laughs> second, you know, you, uh, Denon's aren't going to do because they have their own crappy Heos thing. But the second a receiver with it all just tightly integrated comes out, like I would upgrade, even though I literally just bought this thing. And I don't know, are you thinking about that as a market that's growing, that's going to give you licensing revenue? Or are you just thinking about, you know, how to get this in more, in more places? Uh, both. And, and I think the, the approach is, you know, that it's a niche still. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that's like a huge driver in terms of what's there. But like I said, I think the, I think exploring some of these things makes sense. We'll see how it goes in terms of the work we've done with, uh, Pioneer Onkyo and the others and like, see what kind of demand is there. But I think for, you know, customers like you, there is still uh, a space for us for sure. All right. So we've entered the home theater zone. So I'm going to ask you this question. I'm Sure, you 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 were prepared for it, but you just put out a new home theater product. There is a hot new home theater standard in audio called Atmos. Uh, Apple just announced that they're supporting it, uh, and you're not yet. And I sort of understand why, but I'm curious why why aren't if you're increasing the innovation rate, you're increasing the bias to action, you're increasing the the product cadence, and you want these things to last for a long time. Why not? you know, the big new standard that the Apple TV is now supporting very prominently or, you know, every other streamer supports now? Yeah, look, we, we've always taken the approach of how do we create great sound, you know, for the room. And we look at the technologies that are out there. And we also look at the sources. So, uh, you know, it's, it was good to see Apple pick that up. I'd point out that like for Netflix and a lot of the streaming services, and you know, this Dolby Digital 5.1 is kind of the thing that is used primarily today and we support. And so we're we're always looking at what's happening. And Atmos is fantastic in 7.1.4 today, right, in terms of that experience. And you, you probably know Giles, our sound experience leader. He's actually mixed stuff for Atmos specifically. And we've, I mean, it sounds majestic in that kind of environment. How you bring it into soundbars to really enhance the experience is something, you know, we're definitely looking at and thinking about. But I'd also say... The primary driver at the end of the day is, hey, like, how do we create the best sound 
possible in the room and not get too caught up in like what's the flavor of the day from a audio technology perspective. And so sometimes we'll do things where, yeah, it frustrates um, some of the people that are like a little bit more into uh, the space, you know, in terms of what are the standards and what's the new stuff. But look, if something emerges that's, you know, really experience defining, we have no hesitation about like building that into our products as we go through. But as we went through this one, we said, hey, this is fantastic for 7.1.4. There's still some work to figure out how does it really enhance a soundbar relation, the soundbar experience. And so um, there's still more work to be done. Well, you know, it's funny. Last year you put out the Playbase. Uh, Walt Mossberg and I, we were doing his podcast and he was laughing at me that I even cared. He's like, no one cares. That's not what this product is for. And there's no content anyway. And all of those things were true at that time. But now you are in a world where a lot of your competitors, however you wanted to find a competitive set, but in soundbars, they're all just putting out cheap Atmos soundbars. And Apple in particular, you know, was on stage last week at WWC and they made a big splash and people clapped and bizarrely people tweeted at me, congratulations, which is a I didn't intend to be Dolby's brand ambassador for object-oriented surround, but here I am. Is that something that you could add via software to something like the Beam over time, uh, you know, a new decode support? Because it's gone from being pretty niche to, you know, one of the largest services supporting it. And by default on their, when people have, you know, their Dolby Vision TVs or whatever, they're going to look for that next piece. Well, I think the question is up to Dolby a little bit, too, because they, as you know, have been changing what Atmos means in terms mm-hmm. of like software, soundbars, all of that. And so they've been working on, hey, wh- what does what does Atmos really represent as they go through it? And so I don't think, I, you know, from my perspective, I think the better thing to do is uh, like approach it more like from a a full sound perspective, which is hardware and software and kind of integrated in it. But we'll have to see what Dolby decides to do, um, Atmos around software. And do they, you know, do they change that up a little bit? But I would, I, I'd say I land on the, I'm doubtful that is something that ends up being implemented via software versus hardware, but we'll continue to work with them and really watch it. And I think you're right. It has picked up some momentum, but I'd still say from our experience with consumers, for the most part, they look at it and, they're listening to the sound and trying to determine, does that thing sound great, you know, maybe versus something else instead of does it have Atmos or does it have this uh, and that? So that's that's been our experience so far. I definitely agree with you that Dolby has taken the word Atmos and they it's like they got a brand that anybody would remember. You know, it's like that only happens every so often if you're Dolby, I think. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. were like, now it's on headphones. Your keyboard right. is an Atmos keyboard. And I think that. Right. It's great now, you know, they've accomplished one goal of everybody knows this word, but no one actually quite knows what it means. And I, it's interesting, you know, we've, done, we've been, we've sent reporters out, um, there's a nightclub in Chicago called Soundbar that has an Atmos audio system and the DJs can like swirl sounds around people's heads while they like mm-hmm. dance on drugs or whatever. And that is actually very different technology than what the, the movie side would do. And I think that is, it's interesting, but at the same time. The basic definition is like you more or less add two upfiring speakers to a 5.1 system and you're there. So when you think about the next play bar, right, because that, that product is several years old now, is that something your engineers are like fiercely debating or are you just saying wait and see? Oh, we're definitely debating that and looking at it. And, you know, and obviously we talked to Dolby as well. So uh, on all of this stuff, we're, you know, we try to be on the leading edge in terms of thinking about 
what what's the, what are the right things that should be you know in future products right as we go through that so and, and you're you know and then where will content be right like will it all be coming through apple tv that's a good sign right in terms of where it is but what it, what is it to the core of where you started what does it really mean to a consumer right like is it a good housekeeping kind of seal of approval on sound or what it, what does it mean because today for a lot of our customers they just relate sonos as good sound and the kind of sound that they want. And so I think if we continue to set the bar there and just make sure our products sound great in your home and you can do the modular thing of adding two Sonos ones as rears if you want and adding sub and everything with that, then I think for the vast, vast majority of consumers, uh, we're going to continue to be the right solution. So I want to, want to end here on sort of like the future of where you're going. So you probably can't tell me yes or no, but there's a lot of rumors that you guys are going to IPO someday. The sonic internet remains quiet when I say that. Anyway, a lot of managed hardware companies, companies that build hardware that have cloud components, are starting to do premium services. A big story in the Verge this week, which we did not expect to be a big service uh, story, was uh, the Plume Wi-Fi router. They've lowered the pr- price of the hardware to like $39, but you have to pay a uh, subscription fee every year to make it even work. And if you stop paying, the hardware stops working. Then there's, uh, I don't know. Xbox Live, right? You can buy an Xbox, you can buy a premium subscription on Xbox Live, you get a whole bunch of new features. Are you thinking about recurring revenue from existing Sonos customers? Are you thinking about premium services, subscription services, or are you just, you're going to tell your friend, we're going to buy a new one, and that's how you're going to grow your revenue base? We are, after 16 years in business, 13 years of shipping products, we are very comfortable with a model where we monetize really our investments in experience, software, everything that we do through hardware and a one-time purchase. And I think the we'll we'll always, you know, look at, hey, are there other revenue streams and be open to other opportunities. But we're very happy with our business model and think it's built for the long term. And uh, consumers are, you know, continue to be very happy with it. And so it's a little bit, I think some of sometimes the services question is a little bit of solution searching for a problem. And it's mm-hmm. kind of the flavor of the day right now. And, you know, we've been at this long enough to know that if you build a good business around these things and you're smart about the way you're investing, the way you monetize is secondary. Does that, uh, not to get too wonky here, but you've got to support, you know, 10 years of the past products. You've got to support 10 years in the future. Is there enough margin built into the purchase price of every product to let you support it for 10 years? Is that is that how you model out the prices? Or are you just trying to win and, and get the scale? And, and, and I mean, the competition's fierce. Like, winning is important. So how are you thinking about that balance? Yeah, we've been very thoughtful about the way we've scaled the organization and thought about our investments to be able to do that. And, you know, we since the beginning, you know, the founders have really, you know, thought about the long term and being in it for the long term. And that was part of the equation and thinking about the products. And so we, we remain comfortable that the way we monetize today allows us to continue to grow, continue to invest uh, and continue to be profitable. Do you think every speaker needs to have a microphone? Where do you think the microphones ultimately live? Oh, that's a that's a really good one, and one that I I think this is excellent because you know this is one where right now everybody is putting a speaker and mic into every product, and so I don't know if it's you know next year or three or four years from now, but there's going to be this really weird scenario where you're in your kitchen and you say something, and your toaster, your refrigerator, your microwave, your speaker, you know, all this stuff's going to be talking to you, and it's just. I can see this potential <laughs> nightmare scenario, yeah. right? Where everything has it all and it just, people's minds are blown. And that to me is like a perfect spot where 
the Sonos simplicity comes into play. And you know, I mean, one of the reasons that it takes a little longer with us and it did on Alexa is because we're also working on that software that allows you to use an Echo Dot to control your existing Sonos system. And so we've done a lot of work already in software to be able to, to think about, hey, where, where sh- you know, how would we control our system off potentially another mic, right? And be able to do that. Because I do really wonder, it, I don't believe that every product should have a mic and speaker. And I think in the end that there's the potential that every room will have a mic and a speaker, and they may not be together either. And so, you know, I can see a mic potentially in a light bulb or a light switch, right? For each room, something really low cost. And then the key is how are you using the software to actually be able to interface with it and control and make that a really simple and elegant experience for users. So this will hash out probably over the next three to five years. But I think we're going to, you know, the consumer electronics industry, I think, is in danger of potentially overwhelming customers and confusing them with all these mics and speakers and the, the midterm. So it's something we're thinking about. Don't have the solution yet, but it's something uh, we're definitely thinking about. You know, you've got a couple of products in your lineup that are much older, right? The, the Play 3 has been around for a while. The Play 5 was updated a few years ago. Um, obviously, you've got the Sonos One, which is sitting right next to the Play 1. Are you going to refresh the Play 3? Or You know, there's a lot of people I saw in our coverage when the Beam was announced, they're like, I'm just going to buy this to replace my Play 3. Are you, are you going to replace all those other ones? Are you going to add... Sp- mics to all of those like what is your cadence with sort of the the older products in your lineup especially now that you know only the newer ones support play too well you've seen with one with the sonos one and sonos beam that we're putting mics into those products and I, I think that's something that's important right now kind of in the phase that we're in as we go through that but also i don't necessarily we've always got you know a bunch of things that we're working on a bunch of new products and new software stuff and we're always looking at like, is the right thing really to replace that product or is it to bring something else, you know, into the home? And so it's a balance in terms of do you actually go refresh versus do you do something like a little bit different, but maybe still in that price point. And that's the kind of conversation that we have as we go through it. And so I think it's important not to think as linearly as, hey, you got to refresh that thing. That's just very traditional consumer electronics. And instead it's like, Okay, what Beam is solving for people that want a $400 amazing smart speaker that also creates, you know, great sound for their TV. And so, you know, beyond that, what's the next most important thing as we think about our portfolio? And so I don't get too caught up in what do we have today and then do we replace it? And much more, it's like, what's the next best experience for somebody in their home? Yeah. All right. Patrick Spence, thank you so much for coming on the Vergecast. I hope I didn't give you too hard of a time, but I am very interested in the new products coming out and very interested on this Google Assistant timeline, which I know will be an exclusive news release with The Verge when it happens. I enjoyed our conversation. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Thanks so much, man. So I will say this. We followed up with Sonos Mm -hmm. and said, hey, when I asked Patrick when Google Assistant was coming and if it would be this year, he was just very quiet. But anyway, I followed up and said, you guys have been saying it would be 2018. Your Twitter account's been tweeting it'd be 2018, but he didn't. He refused to confirm that. And they said, yeah, it'll be 2018. I think that puts it way more up in the air than before. Because I don't know. We'll see. But he did say the hurdle was not business but technical, which is very interesting to me. Hmm. Anyhow, Paul. Yeah. Every week, my man. Never forget. Except last week. When you were here, but every other week, <laughs> yeah, you do a segment. It's called "How Big Is the Moon?" So you know the bezel is phone, right? Mm-hmm. 
It's here at last in China. It's like every time it's my time to do a segment, my like browser crashes. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you are trying to work on an iPad right now. Yeah, that's you know what? That's my fault. Okay, Vivo announces next phone with no bezels, no notch, and a pop-up selfie camera. So we've been seeing this phone for a little while. It's got the pop-up selfie. It's really happening. No buzzle, no buzzles or bezels. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and the, the embedded fingerprint sensor behind the screen. Uh, it's coming to China. But what really grabbed me, and you know on this segment every week, I love to talk about photos that people can't see. <laughs> so the press image, or one of the press images for this phone is the phone is on a moon-like landscape, but it looks like it's probably like the 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 phone is at least the size of a Boeing seven forty seven, maybe the the size of like a city, and it's like touching down on this moon. But then if you look in the background, there's like a planet that looks kind of like an icy Earth with rings around it. So this there's basically a whole sci-fi plot here to yeah. be unpacked. I would like to to just go back to the size of the phone and the image. Mm-hmm. 747s in cities are dramatically different sizes. <laughs> Depends on the city. There are some very small towns. What I'm trying <laughs> to true. say is that we're looking at four to five orders of magnitude bigger than a phone. Okay. I'm with you. Right? It's a yeah. logarithmic scale. Of, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I got you. <laughs> what do you think the conspiracy is? Well... <laughs> Are they just too chicken to actually do the 2001 monolith on, on the moon? They, see, that's, they want to say that it's a monolith, but they, they can't? Right. So it's like the, they wouldn't want to knock off 2001 entirely. So they can't have it landing on the literal moon. So like, what if the phone is enormous, way bigger than a monolith, not at all like 2001? And what if it's also <laughs> happening in a different solar system that has a moon very much like our moon, but the Earth is an ice planet with rings around it? Hmm. That's my thinking. I like it. So basically, this is the future of phones. The future of phones is gigantic. It's so futuristic that it is a complete fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that is most phones. For example, mm-hmm. my favorite rumor of the week, Apple rumored to put USB-C on a phone, which is a beautiful fantasy. No way. But the, no, the, the rumor happen. was so bad. That we skipped it. We didn't cover it because in the middle of the the little like rumor report from the Chinese supply chain, mm. they were like, if Apple adopts USB-C, it will accelerate the adoption of USB-C in other phones. And we're all just like, whoever wrote this has never seen a phone. Like They can't <laughs> possibly know that every other phone uses USB-C already. Anyway, that's why we skipped it. I don't believe it will happen for one second. This episode of Vergecast brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provide access to weather data, analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work is the inflection I'm using for that sentence this week. But anyway, you can find out how at IBM.com slash smart. Here are the things that Elon Musk did this week. This is a segment we should do every week. Here are the yeah. things Elon Musk did this week. Yeah. Liz Lapato went to the SpaceX parking lot and picked up a flamethrower to support the Boring Company. Mm-hmm. The flamethrower yep. is hilarious. Not a flamethrower. It's not a flamethrower. It's, it's just a propane torch. It's not as dangerous as everyone's making it seem. Liz and I are both people who would, like, in our regular lives, just want to have flamethrowers. Mm-hmm. Sort of laughing at all the hand-wringing because we're like, you're not going to stop the people who want flamethrowers from having them. Right. Because they're 
It's just a propane torch and airsoft case. Anyway, Liz has it. She's making a video. Very fun. The Boring Company announced a deal with the city of Chicago to build a like a high-speed underground train from downtown to O'Hare Airport. Seems very smart. Seems Everything about this deal is is like just wildly optimistic. I hope it happens, but he thinks it'll get done for less than a billion dollars. He thinks that it'll take longer to get through security at O'Hare than it will to make the trip. And I think that the the oh he's gonna he's gonna make money off it by not by charging fares, no, but by selling fares. you stuff. No, while you're, oh, they'll be fair. It's fine. By selling you stuff while you're in transit. So yes. it'll only take 12 minutes, but in that 12 minutes, you're definitely going to buy some headphones, and then that will pay for this thing, which, is, by the way, is going to cost less than a billion dollars. So it needs to go a pretty long distance. The current trip on uh, the Blue Line on Chicago Cell, a trip I've made many times, 40 minutes. Uh-huh. He's going to do it in 12. You're going to sit in a modified Tesla Model X. It's electric, and it's going to shoot along the track at 150 miles an hour. All this sounds amazing. It's my favorite. Twenty twenty five dollars a ride, uh-huh. and he, the city of Chicago is paying no money. He's going to front all the cash, build the thing, and then collect all the revenue. Cash he raised by selling Liz a flamethrower. I don't think he raised a billion dollars by selling flamethrowers. Unclear where the billion is going to come from, but it is true that in the plan, it's uh, the revenue plan is the tickets, of course, ads and branding on the cars, and. In vehicle sales is specifically listed. And all I can think of, I swear to God, the only thing in my mind that you would need to buy in 12 minutes at 150 miles an hour is a headphone dongle. Hmm. It's people going <laughs> to the fucking airport and they forgot their headphone dongle. And Elon's going to be like, that'll be $45. And you're just going to buy one. He's going to be like, you I paid off buy, a billion dollar tunnel. You could buy neck pillows too. You yeah. think Elon's going to put neck pillows in his beautiful repurposed I'm Model saying X? it's a high margin item. Yeah, but it's it's too big. They're not beautiful enough. Also, the, the the image. This was supposed to be quick. The image of the the sta- proposed station at O'Hare right. is. It looks like a space station. It's like yeah. totally stark and white. Oh, well, this crazy. is why. This is why everybody loves Elon. Everybody yeah. in the world loves this man because he promises a future that we believe should happen. This is how it should be, and he describes it how we want it to exist. Including all the ads that we clearly <laughs> desire. Including the ads and the sales of the. So it sounds so realistic, and it will probably be delayed a bunch of times in rising costs, and then, but we'll still love Elon. <laughs> That's probably true. So we're, Andy's covering the hell out of that. Look yeah. for that. There's coverage of that on the site, including a bunch of, you know, naysaying transportation experts who are like, how will we build this tunnel cheaper? Which is the whole point, but we'll see. Tesla laid off a bunch of workers, several thousand workers, part of company wide restructuring. Mm-hmm. That is very – what's happening with Tesla is just very interesting. We're, we're covering the hell out of that. They've got to produce enough Model 3s. They've got to reduce the cost of companies. He's got a bunch of shareholders who are a little queasy. And they he, need to have enough yellow at their factories. They need to have more yellow at their factories. We're covering <laughs> that basically nonstop because it, obviously, A, I think we're all very interested in what happens with Tesla. And B, the, the gap between the Elon fans mm-hmm. and sort of what is actually happening is widening. And I think that's a very interesting place to explore. And Elon says Tesla will roll out a full self-driving package in August, which we'll see. Hmm. That's it's just an Elon deadline is a is a a, a squishy construct. <laughs> but <laughs> you're right, Paul, he does tend to deliver on these things. So we'll see. We'll see if he hits it. He's already late. He tends to deliver descriptions of things that we want. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I was saying. Well he's missed it. He said by now we would have a car fully drive from New York to LA. Right. That has not yet happened. Yeah, but it sounds like a good thing that would be <laughs> it nice to have. Amazing. <laughs> All right, that was the Elon update, sponsored by Elon. 
<laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, my other favorite piece of Elon news, Gary Vaynerchuk bought a company called Pure, Pure Wow, and they're going to do radio, and one of the channels is just called The Musk Report, and they've promised it will only have positive news, <laughs> which is <Wow>. amazing. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, Dieter, let's do gadgets. Uh, so the we Vlad did a review of the HTC U12 Plus, and man, it's just... They did everything right except the important things. <laughs> <laughs> the camera looks amazing. I've seen a bunch. The camera of... looks incredible. Yeah. The the pressure sensitive buttons are a terrible idea, and it's just like I don't know. Like HTC has been making really good phones and then just tripping right before the finish line, and this just feels like another example of like everything here is amazing, and then you just miss missed it right at the end. Do you think anything has changed since Google? took most of their employees? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Like, I'm you sure that this thing was in development before Google took those employees, right? Oh, okay. they mu- it must have been. That makes so sense. Well, I, I will point what out we're going to see. Vlad's review of the U12 Plus starts on that basically existential note. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read this to you. It's a tough task to review an HTC phone in 2018. Am I supposed to treat this company whose phone design team was recently gutted by Google as a sustainable and continuing business? How do I factor in the non-zero probability of HTC no longer even having a phone division at this time next year? These are questions I don't have answers to. (laughs) It's like, all right, I'm going to read the rest of this review now. But the camera looks great. Go for that. The one, HTC, the one thing they never could get exactly right. Well, they they started getting it right about a year ago, but yeah. But, but they weren't industry leading, right? It, they were no. They're they, they're at the top point of the curve, which I think is great. All right, what else? I should care about the BlackBerry Key too, but I don't. Uh, I'm fascinated that the Samsung Chromebook Plus, the new version, has a, a Celeron processor. They made yeah. a big to do about the the OP1 ARM based processor that they had custom made, or that Google you know work, was working with ARM on, and because it you know it ran way faster than I thought it ever would. I was really pleased with it. I was really excited about it. And uh, radio silence on that issue. So that uh, that may have been an experiment uh, gone awry. For Linux, a lot there is a lot of ARM support on Linux, but it is not as good as it is for x86. So I wonder if that is a play to make. I mean, the Linux apps on Chromebook are very, very exciting to me. And yep. if you could have a really cheap, like here's the this Samsung Chromebook Plus could be like the cheapest way to start developing Android apps. Interesting. Yep. All right. Can I talk about the Eero and Plume thing? Yeah, I was just about to ask you to do that. Okay. <laughs> so Jake covered some Plume. Plume is a Wi-Fi router, mesh Wi-Fi router. Eero is a mesh Wi-Fi router. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar. Uh, Plume is not quite as well known as Eero, but they are a pretty big business because they took a huge investment from Comcast, and that Comcast actually sells the Plume product as the XFi. It's oh. a whole thing. Plume is actually really, their their tech is really interesting. They do some neat virtual networking things. Anyway, Plume announced, "Hey, we are changing the pricing of our routers." We're lowering the cost of like the four pack or five pack to thirty nine dollars, but you have to pay uh, either a two hundred dollar lifetime membership or a sixty dollar a year membership. And if you don't pay, the routers don't work anymore. This is edge computing. It's edge computing. This is your whole thing. Mm-hmm. Super managed thing. So we published this, and they went back and forth in the story. The CEO was like, "Yeah, it'll be fine," and then they followed up with Jake later to be like, "No, it won't be fine." <laughs> this story blew like, w- up. Won't be fine if you stop paying. Yeah. They're going to stop working if you stop paying. Story blows up. Hilarious. It's like, I don't think a lot of people have plume routers, but the idea that we're moving to this managed device world, people just, they really cared about it. Mm-hmm. Story blows up. 
so then uh, we had Patrick Spence on. I was asking about Sonos, and I was like, you know, you probably heard this already, but um, you run a managed hardware business. Mm-hmm. Would you ever do a subscription product and then, you know, break your hardware if people don't pay the fee? And he was like, no, never. That's not how we do our pricing. And I was thinking, you know, we should just ask Eero. Like, we know them. So call Eero, Nick Weaver, like, he's like, yes, I will make that basket and says, we're never going to do this with Eero. Where we have the same pricing model as Apple and Sonos. We price into the product the continuing cost of support. Mm. Great. Then he says some stuff about how it's better to do this is Nick Weaver, the CEO of Eero, says to Jake, it's better to actually do some of this stuff all the time because it optimizes the network. And if you lose this, if you kill it's the subscription stuff you want to have happen in the cloud is is like security related, but network optimization, you want to push down the thing and leave them running all the time anyway. So Jack's like, let me ask Plume if they're going to lose that. So he goes back to Plume's CEO. Plume CEO is like, I changed my mind. <laughs> this is true. This happened. <laughs> uh, they will work. But when you don't pay the subscription, it'll work. Our fallback is really just as good as the other guys can get. So by hook or by crook, we have now gotten the CEO of Plume and the CEO of Eero fighting each other about uh, the future of subscription routers. This all it. seems like a nightmare to me. I would not buy a plume. Also, plume says their business is uh, this is a quote B two B two C. So they want to sell to they want to sell to the broadband providers who will then give you a plume. Isn't that just called being an OEM? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, they're going to be yeah. branded uh, and they're going to run the back end. But the so if you the ran, goal is for them to snake some of that. You know that money you pay to Comcast for their garbage router that you don't want to pay. Uh huh. Their yeah. goal is to be that money. And I think that's, most good. Of, that's a good goal. Yeah, it's if not a bad if goal. you ran a like a little mom and pop store that was like technically an independent business, but like you provided like Comcast services for like rural areas or whatever, you'd be an independent business. So then, if you sold Plume browsers in your little independent store, then technically Plume's business would be B to B to B to C. <laughs> My mm. God. And then, <laughs> if you, you were the customer and you sold it back to the store because you were done with it because it wasn't working, you got a return. And then so. they sold it to another customer. It'd be B to B to B to C to B to C. Yeah. Dieter was thinking, <laughs> yes, I will sink that basket. <laughs> it's just wild. The, the managed hardware stuff, every company now that does a cloud service, I feel like they're going to turn on premium pricing and get recurring revenue, and they're going to cut down the... I think it's OEM plus SaaS. Software as a service plus being an OEM op SaaS. <laughs> we got to move on. All right, let's talk about the thing. What? Upsass. Upsass. Well, here's things that happened this week. Big okay. things. Yeah. On yeah. Monday, the net neutrality repeal order went into effect. Hilariously, a thing that everyone, all the sort of proponents of repealing net neutrality said was nothing bad will happen. Mm-hmm. It'll go into effect. Nothing's going to happen. It'll be fine. On Tuesday, the judge ruled that AT&T could buy Time Warner. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday... Comcast put in a $65 billion offer to buy Fox, which already has a 50-some billion dollar offer from Disney to buy Fox. Mm-hmm. So yep. they're not correlated, but the timing is very, very funny to me because the yeah. goal of all these uh, carriers buying all this con- all these content companies is to prioritize their streaming services. I just want credit for what I wrote in the show notes, which was I had these two things separate because they're not directly causal, but I did write, what a dink. It is a dink. Um, it's a big quinky dink. So the net neutrality thing is over. It's just over. It's done. <laughs> what happened to Congress doing something about it? So Congress is, I think, we less than 50 votes away from sending the congressional review to Trump's desk. 
So the Senate has already passed it, saying we don't want like what the FCC did. Okay. The House is very close. Who knows what Donald Trump will do? Mm. But yeah, the the Democrats are certainly going to run on this as an election issue in the in the coming midterms. They feel it drives turnout. They appear to be correct. People are very fired up about it. A bunch of states are passing their own net neutrality law, which is going to lead to a series of court battles mm. because the net neutrality repeal order specifically prohibits them from doing that. It also is bad for the internet for every state to have a different regulatory regime. Mm. Like it's just difficult. You can see, like GDPR, for example, it, Europe makes GDPR. A bunch of places are like, we can't reconcile this. Our website is no longer available in Europe. Mm. You don't want that. That's weird to do it in all the 50 states, too. It's kind of the same deal. But they're doing it to force the issue. You know, a bunch of service providers, platforms, what have you, are writing letters, rallying troops, doing things. But all of that is happening in the shadow of these two colossal mergers, AT&T and Time Warner, and then whatever, Fox and Disney or Fox and Comcast. I read the opinion from the district court judge in the AT&T case. Here is what I think. The government did a terrible job of arguing this case, and the judge did a terrible job of understanding what was going on. So everyone's at fault, except mm-hmm. for AT&T, which literally just is like gleefully, throughout the entire opinion, is just gleefully getting away with it. Right. So <laughs> this is a quote from the judge in the opinion. To sum it up in the words of AT&T chairman CEO Randall Stevenson, the defendants view the proposed merger as a vision deal. And it's like that. Like the whole opinion's like that. What? Like AT&T is putting forth its vision for the future of content. The judge is in love with it. And then the judge is like, the government is stupid. And the, the government, for its part, was indeed very stupid. Hmm. So the main character you need to know in this whole thing is a professor named Carl Shapiro. Poor Carl. I feel bad for him. He's the government's expert witness on antitrust matters. Mm-hmm. And he literally tore the government's own case apart through the trial. So he gets on, on the stand. And he testifies, this is another quote from the decision, the government's own expert predicts that due to a standard benefit of vertical integrations, AT&T's DirecTV and Uverse customers will pay a total of about $350 million less per year for their video services. Well, you just lost, because that's yeah. the whole... <laughs> and this goes like on and on and on, the government shoots itself in the foot. The argument that they well, never make, they do not make, mm. which is the thing that AT&T wants to do that is anti-competitive, they do not say... AT&T is going to preload apps from Time Warner like HBO Now and DirecTV Now, CNN, and prioritize their traffic and exclude it from data caps, which would give it preferential treatment to Netflix and YouTube and Google and Facebook and whatever else have you. The government, as near as I can tell, does not ever truly advance this argument. The judge does not take it into consideration and instead spends 90 pages talking about whether TNT's sports programming will cause it to black out its channels as it negotiates for carriage and charter, which is not really the de- the reason that this merger is happening. Mm. But that's a 90 page of the decision is a point by point argument about cable blackout negotiations and literally nothing about what's going to happen on mobile phones. And that to me is like the government blew it and the judge didn't see it. And now we're here. Do you want to get into this idea that's floating out there that the metric by which we decide whether or not something is a, you know, a bad idea needs to be regulated Typically, it's just like consumer harm or consumers going to have to pay more money, but maybe that's like the wrong thing to be paying attention to. It's like it's around this, but it's not precisely what happened here. Yes. But can I read one more hilarious Carl Shapiro quote? Yeah. Can one you read the... it? Like he loves he loves this thing, this uh, AT&T argument so much. It's so it's bad. Like a, it's like a 
It's like a romance novel. Can you right, read I'll it in, as though you were dictating a romance novel? Yes. So one of the government's other theories about why AT&T should be blocked from buying Time Warner, this is true, mm. is that they would enter into a coordinated conspiracy with Comcast to kill other video providers. This is, a tr- this is absolutely true. <laughs> Which, fine. I'm just, here's the... He- <laughs> here's here's our man Carl Shapiro testifying to the government's case about coordination between AT&T and Comcast. When questioned at trial about the government's coordinated effects theory, Professor Shapiro conceded that he had no way of assessing the probability of coordination and thus had not attempted to quantify any risk whatsoever come that on, the predicted come on, coordination make it a little could sexier. occur. Accordingly, Professor Shapiro confirmed that he was not in a position to say that coordination is more likely to happen than not. And indeed, Shapiro was not prepared to even say that there's a 1% chance that coordination will happen as a result of the merger. <laughs> Carl Shapiro! Just take it. He's like, I don't know. I give up. Yeah, I mean, Do you know how the government, uh, AT&T's expert witness responded to that? I don't know what I'm supposed to rebut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, antitrust is so hard to, it seems like it's so hard to prosecute before the fact. Like, with Microsoft... Mm-hmm. probably the most fam- famous antitrust case, you could say, hey, Microsoft did these terrible things to Real and did these terrible things to Netscape. They used their market position yeah. to bully other people out of the market. But here you're conjecturing. And so something I've been reading is like something that happens sometimes in these cases is the judge is like, okay, this is all conjecture. They're worried about these harms and this stuff. So get rid of these businesses or like sell off these yep. businesses or like here are some rules that you should follow for 10 years or something to, but none of that happened here. This was either. everyone's expectation. Mm-hmm. Everyone's expectation was the judge would say, I'm allowing this mm-hmm. on these list of conditions. You cannot collude with Comcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just insanity. I mean, there's one good argument about the Comcast collusion. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really come up. But if you think about AT&T and Verizon, mm-hmm. effectively a duopoly, their pricing rates basically mirror each other. Their sponsored data plans and prioritization and zero rating stuff, they all tend to just be the same, right? And it's right. only in response to T-Mobile being a challenger from the outside that they ever do anything different. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're effectively a duopoly, right? They're the two biggest. They own most of the market share. It's very hard. To, they don't really need to compete with each other. They can just be the same. Right. Government didn't make that argument. They're literally red and blue. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, everyone is expecting conditions. No conditions. This judge is also the judge who approved the Comcast-NBCU deal, upon which there were significant conditions placed. Right. So net neutrality is over, but Comcast is still operating under the FTC consent decree that effectively imposes net neutrality on its network for a period of time. Well, and Comcast and, just came out with a thing they're saying they're not throttling anymore. Yeah. They stopped throttling about a year ago, and they said it was all technical reasons. Sure it was. They, they need to, like, show off some good news after net neutrality is over. Yeah. By the way, the disclosure, Comcast owns a significant state, or Comcast's NBCU division owns a significant so, state in Vox Media, which is the parent company of The Verge. I assure you, they don't love us. Here's my exciting <laughs> theory. So, obviously, we're segueing into the fact that Comcast mm-hmm. is trying to outbid Disney for Fox. Yeah. And everybody knows if Disney gets Fox, they can merge the Marvel Universe with the X-Men. We have a story about this coming. But if Comcast buys Fox, 
then we basically have the X-Men. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> they can merge the minions with X-Men. I don't think that's how this works. <laughs> Batman with X-Men. I think I could be one of the X-Men. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. You're going you're gonna to jump the... The corporate investment ladder. Yeah. <laughs> the next X. You're Deadpool now. Is I'm basically becoming Deadpool if this goes through. So I'm really rooting for Comcast. So that's actually a hilarious thing. So literally Comcast's board was waiting for the AT&T decision to come down to see if the government was going to allow mergers of this type. Mm-hmm. Obviously, AT&T, the judge says you should buy them. There's a really interesting wrinkle here. This opinion is crazy. I'm going to have a whole long thing that we'll publish Ideally, by the time that this podcast goes out, um, there's like a bunch of exclamation points in it, which is not usually what you get out of a judge. The word poppycock is used. Mm-hmm. What? It's crazy. But at the end of it, the judge points out that AT&T and Time Warner set a deadline on their deal. So it doesn't close by June 21st. The deal's off. And Time Warner has to pay AT&T a bunch of money, which is like a standard thing. Yeah. The judge says, I'm instructing the government to not appeal this ruling because it will extend the it will extend the trial or the, the legal proceeding past the deadline and the deal will be off. Right. So literally it's like you've and had your day in court. for that was – that would be mean? It's like, it would be do it uh, manifestly unjust was the, the words he used. Wow. You've, you, he said it's been going on for, for you know, a year and a half. Is that long the, how long the court case has been going on? It's, yeah, 2016. Um, there is a right to a speed trial. I just want to point that out. Yeah. I'm just saying. The, one of the biggest mergers in corporate history. This is pretty pretty speedy. That's actually one of his points. He's like, I did a good job. It was real fast. Because <laughs> uh, I had to do like millions of pages of document production. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyway, but he he says, you've had your day in court, and the court has spoken, and the defendants have won. Just an incredible decision. Hmm. But the government could still appeal. I'm not, I don't, it's shocking to me that Donald Trump has not tweeted about it yet, because he hates CNN. This is a thing that Time Warner wants, and thus a thing that CNN wants. Is that the whole reason? By I, I try to look up like why does Donald Trump not like this? I, I don't understand his he, dislike he of hates, this. He hates CNN of this merger. I think he, yeah, it's, so he's not a wisdom is he complex just man. Yeah. Um, but it's also true, and I think you know this about me. I'm, I'm a more liberal gentleman. Mm-hmm. That the Obama DOJ would have likely never brought this case. There has not been a vertical merger antitrust lawsuit like this for 40 years. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like really strong grounds for the the government to oppose. So the, this is what Dieter was mentioning earlier. That we need a new doctrine for this? Yeah, so there's a, there's this classic sort of way you measure. So the reason you don't do vertical mergers is because they typically don't reduce the number of competitors in the market. Right. Right? So you've got – think about a supply chain. You've got suppliers, you've got distributors, you've got uh, marketers, something mm-hmm. at the top. If you combine two companies at any level, you increase market power for that new entity and you decrease the number of competitors. That's bad. So horizontal mergers, that's what's usually called, um, get blocked all the time, get challenged. Vertical mergers where like the you know distributor buys a supplier, that's pretty normal. Mm-hmm. So great. That happens all the time. For 40 years, there has not been a lawsuit of this type for a vertical merger. One of the new things that is happening is the typical way that you measure the harm is whether consumer prices go up, right? So you say, okay, you're going to have decreased competition in the market. We, we see the prices will go up for consumers. That's a consumer harm. Reduces competitiveness. We're going to block it. In the new world that we live in, many products are free. 
There are huge companies like Amazon that just relentlessly undercut their pricing. So it's, it's actually very hard to measure pricing effects. It's also very hard to measure effects like net neutrality and like prioritizing of traffic. So there's it, literally, it's called hipster antitrust. You can look it up. Ooh. That's the term people use. And it's, uh, <laughs> uh, there was just a big, the Open Markets Institute just held a big conference called Breaking the News where they talked about how they would apply all, a new idea about antitrust to basically internet platform company. There's a great, uh, Matt Honan wrote a great Wait. piece in BuzzFeed about it. Well, and so Comcast buying Fox would be vertical or more, more vertical than Disney buying Fox. Right? It would be both horizontal and vertical because they own Universal. So they, they mm. own one major studio. They'd be buying another one and it, it would go up vertically. Disney is obviously like right there. But Fox is splitting up. They're not buying all of Fox. So Fox Broadcast, the Fox Network, Fox News, they're all going to end up in a new company called New Fox, which is amazing. Mm. And then 21st Century Fox and movie studios and all this stuff would either go to Comcast or Disney. But literally, they were waiting on the AT&T decision, the Comcast executives, to make this offer. We'll see. So I'll, I'll put it to you. Yeah. Would you rather have 50-some billion dollars worth of Disney stock, or would you rather just take a $65 billion check from Comcast? That is the decision in front of the, the Fox board. Hate hate these kinds of decisions. <laughs> right? <laughs> or I'm so rich, or I'm so rich. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's how they got to decide. <laughs> I, I, so I feel like I, I personally, I don't know what I would decide. I'd go with Comcast so that I could become an expert. <laughs> so I like these vertical mergers a lot because I, I feel like there's like there's like a new kind of company like that's emerging. Even Apple's trying to do it a little bit. I feel like a lot of it's been influenced by Netflix, which weirdly is the least vertical of all of these companies. No, in the decision, they call them the most vertical. Everyone's so confused. They're like everybody. everybody Netflix called it. Netflix is like we're going to do DVDs by mail until we can stream, and then they they just they just they called the whole progress of how we would be entertained in the year 2018. It, All these companies want to be like Netflix, but they're like we could do more than Netflix. We yep. could own a consumer not just for ten dollars a month. We'll get you know in Comcast's case, they could have them as a mobile subscriber and a TV subscriber. And HBO subscriber, or no, not and HBO a subscriber. consumer of advertising, and advertise, yeah. So like we we could be we could be getting like two hundred three hundred dollars a month in revenue per customer. Whereas like if you're a movie studio, you hope like you like someone like sees two of your movies in a year and you're doing great. So let me let me take all these things and like you're right about the new business model. I think that the the thing that we're going to be talking about in 2020 mm-hmm. is. Uh, Loot boxes, but for cell phone service. <laughs> <laughs> All right, think about it. I hope. Uh, yeah, I just the thing is, you're gonna pay I, five bucks, and then you're gonna open up the thing, and it'll be gamified about whether you get like 50 minutes of talk time or like two gigs of data. I think. I think my <laughs> my my principle is, is look. If, I was very small as a kid, and so I developed a mantra: the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And I like these companies just getting disgustingly large and convoluted because I feel like at some point they just lose total sight of what they are trying to accomplish and they completely fail. Yeah. And and that's what I'm rooting for. So I'm rooting for these mergers because <laughs> I want I I want I want to live in a world where there's a, like five maybe five more years of a content gold rush where people are built spending billions of dollars creating new shows like Westworld. 
and 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 all these companies were trying to be Netflix, and then they will all ultimately lose sight of actual customer interests and ultimately fail. Yeah, big things are funny. Yeah, they're like dum dum dum. Topple over. Exactly. I will say that that is there's like a it's like a very nihilist view of the world. We're like we are just. We we are just particles in the breeze of AT and T breaking up and recombining and AT, breaking up and recombining, yeah. and, and those winds will just blast us around the world until we're dead. I mean, just to be clear, Paul, the the future that you just said you're hoping for is like almost word for word how Karl Marx described the collapse of capitalism. <laughs> just, just he didn't make he didn't there. make the big things are look, funny joke. If, if 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 Karl Marx is right and capitalism will actually dethrone itself, good for Karl Marx. If it doesn't take a violent <laughs> yeah. revolution uh, of of yeah, it of, just takes putting the X Men in the MCU. Yeah, I mean that would be that would that would that would fuck some shit up right there if you did that. I will say that we I found it very the amount of Twitter standing for Disney to win the Fox deal and not Comcast. That's all X Men based. It's all X Men based. Yeah. Devin, Devin Maloney, our, our internet culture editor, is, is writing a piece on it. It's like the funniest thing. If 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 Disney said, "Okay, Comcast, go for it. We just want X Men." Yeah. What would they Ooh. pay? Thirty billion. <laughs> <laughs> How much are the X Men worth? Well, nothing anymore because Fox has blown it time and time again. Yeah, got, but there's two good X Men movies. They're, they're but Disney has a clear Deadpool and Logan. A method. Uh, Day of the Future Past was good. Of was getting medium. a billion or two. A year out of yeah. each of these properties. Do you think Bob Iger's like, I just want those goddamn X Men? I just want the X Men. <laughs> he's, just, he's just strolling around his palatial villa. <laughs> like, so many good ones. Wolverine. Can I read Cyclops. you? Everybody hates Cyclops, but still he's like really important as a character. Can I read you one more insane line from this? Yes, please. I, I just don't, I don't understand. I, the judge does not know the difference or the similarities between Netflix and HBO now. Don't oh, show sure. this to you. HBO content re- reaches consumers in four ways. Uh, I'm going sk- to expand the acronyms for you. HBO content c- reaches consumers in four ways. Through cable companies, through virtual cable companies like DirecTV Now, through subscription video on demand, you, know, you can buy it through Amazon Prime, and through HBO's proprietary over-the-top pro- product, HBO Now. In each case, the end customer accesses HBO by way of a distributor, even for HBO Now, which is sold by digital distributors like Apple and Amazon. Mm. Wow. I read that a dozen times. What is he talking about? It's it's nonsense. You can you can get HBO now on the web. Apple Apple doesn't Apple doesn't sell iPhones because you can buy iPhones at Best Buy. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? Netflix, HBO now, Netflix are the same product. Mm -hmm. And the idea that to make HBO now better, you need to stuff it full of location data from AT and T consumers is nonsense. That's what that's what this whole decision is like. It also, I think, presages the the fall of capitalism through corporate collusion <laughs> and merger. Yeah. yeah. Look, I want them all to fail miserably and be so sad. Like we thought we were so rich, but we were wrong. Well, they're gonna be so rich. <laughs> don't don't you worry yeah. about that. All right. We've gone way over an hour and a half Vergecast. I'm sorry that we I'm not that sorry. I'm not sorry. I love antitrust law. Hipster antitrust. Hipster antitrust. I am. I am Heard it here first. I, 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 I want us to actually start covering it more because I think the only way that you're going to effectively regulate a company like Amazon is to change 
antitrust law, and that's the way it's going. What go. is a generic argument against vertical integration? There is there isn't. That's actually why this case fell apart. The the government put on a very conservative case mm-hmm. that used sort of the standard model, and there's a reason that the standard model hasn't been used to block a vertical merger in 40 years. Right. And the judge was like, "Nope, that's not it." But you don't. What's the hipster argument? The hipster argument is that there are other ways to reduce competitiveness by measuring different factors in the environment or by talking about um, uh, platform dominance and control. So, like, Google never raises prices because everything is free. Mm-hmm. If the only way that you're going to impose antitrust law is by saying prices went up, well, now you've just you, you've literally cut yourself off. From that, Amazon rarely raises prices, right? They they try to lower the price and everything. They sell so many goods that they can sell some things at cost. You can never really say Amazon buying this thing is going to raise prices. So you need to find some new ways of measuring competitiveness in a market. And one of the one of the ways that I think is very interesting to both the right and the left is like access to distribution. And that's like who knows how that will work. But if you have these dominant platforms, they get bigger and bigger and bigger because of network effects. Uh-huh. Then you need to, and they're free. You can never say the price of participation is going up. So that's like very, who knows? It's just out there. And I think it, the fact that both the right and the left are kind of like into it is like very interesting. Oh, we're going to do a thing on it. Hubris is what I enjoy in this. Yeah. Because that hubris leads to downfall. There's a great article in the Wall Street Journal about what happens now with AT&T and Time Warner. And literally the thing it points out in like the second paragraph is that AT&T is a very staid, like it's a phone company. Uh-huh. And all but nine executives at AT&T fly coach. And like everybody at Time Warner is Hollywood and they all fly first class. And they have like greeters at the airport and butlers who take them through security. Oh, culture class. And they got to they gotta glue these cultures together. And that's like, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Do you know what other company tried to buy, uh, try to merge with Time Warner and had a culture class and failed? AOL. Uh, I was oh, waiting I for that. We used to work that. there. We Remember, we worked there when they spun it back out. Man. It's Thomas Ricker, so our, our international editor, used to be so embarrassed that he worked for AOL. They told everybody he worked for Time Warner. <laughs> 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 he was really sad when it like, unmerged. He's like, oh, shit. Oh. Um, but AOL was a big distribution network, right? The dial-up service. They bought Time Warner to glue Time Inc.'s print properties into that distribution because you couldn't do video yet. And the culture clash destroyed the company. I knew it. AT&T. You know, Time Warner and Time Inc. have split, so the magazines aren't there anymore. AT&T is buying Time Warner to glue its video onto its distribution network, and the culture clashes there. Like, a lot of lessons there. You know who wrote great books about AOL, Time Warner? Kara Swisher wrote two of them. Oh. One of them is called There Must Be a Pony in Here Somewhere. Because <laughs> that's what they used to say. <laughs> but the merger is true. You can get me by. It's a great book. Highly recommended. Speaking of Kara Swisher, that's the end of this podcast. So now I'm going to plug her podcast. You can listen to Kara every week. Recode, decode. Our friend Peter Kafka does Recode Media, both excellent podcasts. And Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor at The Verge, doing Converge every week. It's so good. It's so good. So good. He has the CEO of Pocket on this week. Last week, he had the guy who fights spam at Google. They played a game called Spam or No Ma'am. It is the best. Check out Converge. I'll let you know. I think that that show about buttons. Oh, really? Yeah, we're talking about it. Some button questions? Uh-huh. Some button questions might be coming up. You can follow us everywhere. Paul's at Future Paul. Dieter's at Backlon. I'm at Reckless. Let us know how you want us to do more interviews. I really want us to do more interviews. So if you liked the Laura segment and you liked the interview, I would love some feedback. On how we should package this stuff in the broadcast. We should have more episodes, 
edit interview. Let me know. I'm just curious. And this is true. A little surprise. One of our producers asked me to plug this on The Vergecast. I'm doing it very end, a quiet voice. The Verge and Curbed have built a house. There's an actual house in Austin that we have made. We, we made it. But it's not South by Southwest. It's not South by Southwest. We built a, a smart home. Okay. So Curbed helped us. They helped us build a cool prefab house because that's the future of houses. We stocked it full of cool smart home stuff. Shooting a video series. Grant Imhara from Mythbusters is the host. That stuff is coming. The house is open next week in Austin. It's going to be super cool. Keep an eye out. Home of the future. This whole thing. Bra- right. Brands. Brands. <laughs> Brands. Working together, hand in hand. Hand, hand in Okay, we're done. That's it. That's the Roadcast. Thank you very much. Rock and roll. Paul. Promo code.